Well, good morning. Give you a welcome in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have uh, gathered to worship our Lord. And I also want to, uh, to welcome those who are following us online as well. Uh, just uh, one announcement that I just wanted to note. Uh, you might want to drive by on uh, tomorrow or Tuesday or Wednesday and watch all the roofers. They're going to be on top of our roof replacing that. So that should be a lot of fun to see. We're glad that will be able to finally take place. Now, uh, George Roundtree is chairman of the Pastoral Search Committee. He's going to come and give a report. Good morning. Jeff is the number one candidate, and the search team uh, 
Thank you, George. That's, that's very good news. And um, you know, as I was mentioning in the uh, earlier service, I mean, this, this team has really done actually a very fast job. They weren't elected till June of last year. They didn't meet till July. Then they have to do preliminary work. It's really September. And they're actually starting the search process uh, to uh, have found actually several candidates and, and uh, to have uh, this uh, individual whom they're um, whom they've selected, who, who evidently desires to be here. I've also uh, have talked a good while uh, with him, very encouraged. He seems to have a good shepherding heart, which is that's what I want to look for. The other thing that I'm looking for, is he going to be an expository preacher? And uh, that, that's how, uh, that is what he's also. So I'm looking forward uh, to this new opportunity for the church. Now let's uh, prepare our hearts for worship.
Well, in the uh, throne room of heaven, uh, the angels, saints have been singing this song to Jesus Christ. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. We come, our God, to join with these voices to give praise and thanksgiving to Jesus Christ, the Lamb, who by his blood has, has won into your kingdom those from every tribe, from every tongue, from every nation. And we exalt our great Lord Jesus Christ who reigns over the earth. And we pray that we will honor your name through him, that we will honor your name by the power of your Holy Spirit in us. Pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together, Jesus shall reign. Confession of Faith, we're going to read uh, a section from our Westminster Confession of Faith about Christ as our mediator. Let us confess together our faith. 
God was pleased to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten Son, to be the mediator between God and man. This office the Lord Jesus most willingly undertook. He was born under the law and perfectly fulfilled it. He endured most grievous torments in his soul and most painful sufferings in his body. He was crucified, died, and was buried. He remained under the power of death, yet his body did not undergo decay. And he arose from the dead on the third day with the same body in which he has suffered. In this body he ascended into heaven, where he sits at the right hand of his Father, making intercession. And he shall return to judge men and angels at the end of the age. The Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he, through the eternal Spirit, once offered up to God, has fully satisfied the justice of his Father. He purchased not only reconciliation, but also an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father has given to him. Let's pray now together the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And our Father in heaven, we do give you praise and we honor you. That you are the great sovereign God over all of creation. There is no other God. There is no other rock. You alone are God, and we worship you, and we praise you. We praise you that you are God the Father, that you are God the Son, that you are God the Holy Spirit. Who can be like you, three persons in yet one? How wondrous, how mysterious, how marvelous you are. And so we gladly come as your people, Come as those who have been redeemed by your Son. Come as those who have been made new by your Holy Spirit, who have been adopted as your children, and to worship our great God and Father. We pray that we will honor you in our worship this morning. We pray that we will honor you when we leave uh, the walls of this sanctuary and we go back into our homes back into our community, as we go back to the workplace and to our schools, that by the way that we live, by the way that we speak, by the way that we treat our neighbors, people will see what it is to belong to the kingdom of Jesus Christ, to see what it is uh, to be like to those who consciously are honoring the name of God the Father, to see what it, a life is like and what People are consciously seeking to do the will of God on earth as it is done in heaven. 
May we be a light as a congregation in this community. May we uh, be a light individually in our homes and workplaces and among our neighbors. Our Father, we do pray for your guidance and blessing uh, of our church. We thank you for the good work of the pastoral search team, trusting that they have been led by your Holy Spirit. Uh, We pray that uh, for the coming three weeks, as we uh, wait uh, for the time in which we will uh, meet Reverend Birch and his wife, uh, we pray for your preparation of them, preparation of us, as we seek to understand and, and know more of them, seek your leading for this congregation. Our Father, we uh, pray uh, as well for our nation. Pray for your watch over uh, those who have been elected, those who have been appointed in their positions, whether it's in our, 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 over all of our nation, whether it be among, in our state, whether it be in our community. May we again demonstrate what it is to be members of your kingdom as we live out being good citizens here in our own country. We pray that you would give to us our daily bread, feed us with the food uh, of your word this morning. Feed us with all that we need for our bodies. Feed us what we need for our spirits, for our very souls. Our Father, we pray that you would forgive us of our debts that are many, as we forgive uh, those of our debtors which are few. Thank you for that forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ that comes purely by your mercy. We pray that we not be led into temptation. You know our frailties and weaknesses. You know the particular sins for which we are liable. And we pray that you would protect us from the evil one who will seek to tempt us, who will seek to exploit those weaknesses of us. All the more we pray for your protection and watch over us. We make this prayer acknowledging to you belongs the kingdom of which we are citizens of. To you belongs the power by which we live our lives. Do you belong all the glory for which we are to live our lives? In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
seated. Well, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna say for you what you wanted to say. Wow. Wow. About a um, about a decade decade ago, there was an ad campaign in London's on London city buses, and uh, on the bus, in big letters was, "There's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy life." Now I tell you, if they had sought my advice, I would have advised them to have removed that word, probably. I mean, telling me to stop worrying because probably, you know, I will not have to answer to God, that would not have been reassuring to me. Now, our psalm today has no probably about it. There certainly is the God who rules over all, and there is much to worry about if one chooses to rebel against him. On the other hand, there is a blessed life to enjoy if one gladly lives under his reign. Well, I invite you to look with me at Psalm 2. You can use the insert uh, that's in your bulletin, uh, as well as uh, turning to your Bibles. Now, the psalm is broken into four stanzas. Each stanza has three verses uh, in it. And the first stanza is going to introduce us to the subject matter. So look with me in verses 1 to 3. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So the subject is rebellion. The nations do not want to be under the rule of God. Specifically, the kings of these nations are rejecting the rule of God's anointed. They consider the rule of God, they consider the rule of his anointed as as a bondage from which they must break free. Now the next two stanzas are going to present first God's response and then the anointed's response. So verses 4 through 6, let's see what, how God responds to this. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So the previous psalm, if you might recall from, from last Sunday, Psalm 1, Remember how it spoke of sitting with the scoffers? That that is something that the blessed man does not do? Well, here we have God sitting and scoffing. But unlike the wicked scoffers of Psalm 1, God is not just some kind of mere spectator scoffing at the real doers. He's the sovereign king sitting on his throne. And the kings of the earth, they they think that they are cleverly plotting rebellion in secret. They think they're going to surprise him with this this carefully laid plot. God's looking at it. God sees all. 
And far from being alarmed, he finds their plotting humorous. But he's not happy about it, and their rebellion provokes his wrath. And let's note again his response in verse 6. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So again, this is the real issue here. Who will sit on the throne as ruler? Now, Zion is the mountain on which Jerusalem, which is the capital city, sits upon. And the kings of the nations, they're bucking against this chosen ruler. God makes clear here that the anointing is the king that he has set in place. And there is to be no protest about it. Okay, now the anointed is going to speak up in verses 7 to 9. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So the anointed attest that, yes, indeed, the Lord God has set him in place here as king. And his installation is the result of a decree, a covenant that is set in stone. That root word in Hebrew for decree or for covenant, it comes from a word that means cutting in stone. And so the installation of the anointed is not, it's not just some kind of spontaneous action by God, nor is it the result of the anointed kind of making a play for it uh, ahead of the other rulers. No, God has set him on the throne intentionally, and it's an act that cannot be rescinded, it cannot be violated. Now let's look further at the, this decree in verse In verse 7, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So what this statement is, is a public declaration. There was a common concept in the ancient world of regarding the human king as the son or a son of whatever divine being of that nation. And so when This word is spoken, today I have begotten you, is simply a a way of saying publicly, today I have established you as king. That's who you now are. There's an episode in the Old Testament that kind of illustrates the significance here. Think back to King David. He's near the end of his life. He is lying in bed. He hears that Adonijah, who at that time is the remaining oldest son of David, and Adonijah has declared himself uh, as the successor king. And he's prepared a feast, and he's gotten all of his friends to come around him. Well, when David hears about this, David had already promised the throne to his son Solomon. Okay. So he hears about this, And he gives the following orders. I'm going to read to you a passage from 1 Kings chapter 1. King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest. Zadok is the high priest. Nathan the prophet. And Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. 
So they came before the king, and the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord, that is, David's servants, and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule, and bring him down to to Gion, and let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. They blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. You shall then come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne, for he shall be king in my place. And I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. Well, that settled the matter. When this took place, all the men who had joined with Adoniah immediately abandoned him, and Adonijah himself ran to the temple as a sanctuary for protection. Once the sovereign king had declared the chosen son and had anointed him as king, all resistance ended. And so the same scenario is taking place here. There's some rebellion going on. God is setting forth his anointed son, anointing him as as the king to end that rebellion. And then as if there are any questions as to the extent of the new king's authority, verses 8 and 9 settle the matter. All the nations of the earth uh, are to bow and acknowledge him. All of them are under his domain. He possesses complete authority over them. That's his rule with the iron rod. We then come to the fourth stanza that concludes that brings the conclusion. It's what the nations and the kings ought to do now in response to God declaring and setting up his anointed as the king of kings. Okay, verses 10 and 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So the kings and their nations should take warning. They need to shape up. They need to stop this conspiring now, and they need to renew their responsibility, not merely to serve the king, but do it with the right attitude that of an appropriate fear that is due to their sovereign. And this is not a fear of cowering, but it is the fear of subjects serving a sovereign whom they acknowledge is far above them, whom they acknowledge has full authority over them. Again, their sovereign, they're to understand, is majestic. He is awe-inspiring. Now, having said that, still, there ought to be a fear that recognizes what is in store for rebellious subjects. They need to acknowledge that they may receive the wrath of God, who will destroy such rebels. When it speaks here, for his wrath is quickly kindled, speaking of the wrath of God, who has set his son on that throne. Now, Kester's son refers to acknowledging the rule of the anointing. It's signaling their, their goodwill toward him. And so uh, the Lord God is saying here that he will not accept worship, 
in the service from any subject who does not give that worship, uh, that respect, that honor to his anointed. So let's summarize the psalm. The kings of the nations, they want to rebel against the rule of the anointed. God, in response, he sets up, he proclaims the anointed as the rightful king over them. The anointed also testifies to this. The kings then are given warning. Make amends while you have time. And you need to offer a goodwill service to the anointed. The very last line seems to be a concluding blessing that's extended to all those who will do this, subject themselves under the rule of the anointed. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. What it does at the end is kind of restores what has been a tense situation here. God's been confronting rebels and is bringing them to the reminder that what they really need to be under is the peaceful condition that is the reality for those who will trust in their sovereign for their refuge. To be under the rule of God through the reign of his anointing It's not a curse of living under bondage. It's no cords to break from. It's a blessing of living under refuge, under protection. Now, as I've been taking us through this psalm, I've been treating, and this is how most commentators treat the psalm, it's kind of like a coronation poem for someone, for an earthly king. And it may have been written for David, or in the New Testament, They say it is written by David. Maybe he wrote it for himself. Uh, But with that said, you can see how easy it, it was for Jewish rabbis over the decades and over the centuries. They look back to this psalm and they see it as a what's called a messianic psalm. A psalm that is pointing to and speaking of the Messiah. The Hebrew word for anointed literally is pronounced Messiah. And so the Jewish kings, they were regarded as anointed, but as time again would go on, even these kings were looked at as foreshadowing the anointed who would come, the Messiah that the Jews would eagerly anticipate, this anointed who would come and deliver them from the rule of the foreign nations and kings and would establish an everlasting kingdom that would be over all the other nations. That's what they were looking forward to come. And they would look back to this psalm as pointing to that. So Jesus comes, the Messiah. And that leads us to then ask the question, how does he fulfill Psalm 2? Well, there are three books in the New Testament that look back to this psalm in light of Jesus' coming. The first book is the book of Acts, which does it twice. In the first case, it's in chapter 4 of Acts, what has happened is that Peter and John have been arrested. They have to appear before the Sanhedrin, who gives them dire warning never to speak of that name again, the name of Jesus. And then they're allowed to go free. So we're going to pick up from there. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. 
And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and here we have it, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointing. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So as the apostles saw it, they're now being persecuted because of this passage being fulfilled, of a rebellion against the Lord's anointing. There is the rebellious act of foreigners, the Romans, who put Jesus to death. For that matter, the rebellion of God's very own people who collaborated with them for his crucifixion. And then as they're noting out, this rebellion continues through the persecution of the apostles. Now the next reference to Psalm 2 is found in Acts 13. And in that context, you have the apostle Paul. He has gone out on one of his mission journeys, and he does what he normally does. He first finds the local synagogue, and he is speaking to his fellow Jews. And he's going to present Jesus by giving them, first of all, Jewish history. And he takes them up now to the life of Jesus and to his crucifixion. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. And this is the verse that he points to. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So you see there, Paul is is linking that coronation uh, words with Jesus' resurrection. And I want you to think back to, to the book of Ephesians in chapter 1. And though he doesn't specifically mention Psalm 2 here, uh, you still get that image that he's presenting here. This is Paul writing in Ephesians 1. He speaks of the working of God's great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. That's the resurrection. And then note this and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. You can see that image there that no doubt Paul's got in mind, has seated him at his right hand, seated him on the throne. So God's image, image of his son, in which he establishes God. Son on his holy hill above the nations, above their kings. Now the second book that brings up Psalm 2 and brings up this exact same verse about uh, God's son is in Hebrews. First time is in Hebrews in chapter 1 of Hebrews. Let me read it to you. After making purification for sins, 
Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have forgotten you. And then we could take you to chapter 5. And no one takes this honor for himself, that is, of becoming the high priest, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. So in the first instance, our author is using Psalm 2 to demonstrate Jesus' superiority over the angels. In the second time, in, verse, in chapter 5, he's using that same verse to authenticate Jesus' position as high priest over all who uh, obey him. Now, when you think about this, as I was you know, reflecting on this, you think about the Gospels. All four Gospels were written to testify to this very concept that Jesus is the Son of God. When you look at the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness, Satan tempts Jesus three times, and each time he says, if, if you are the Son of God, then prove it. And then when, as Jesus is, we go through the, Jesus' ministry, and we're getting near the end, he's at his trial, and Caiaphas points at him and says to him, Are you the son of God? Jesus confirms it, and then Caiaphas condemns him. That's the issue. And the gospel writers are testifying that this is the rightful title. So, for example, in Matthew, at the end of Matthew, Matthew 27, Jesus there is on the cross. And we're told this, when the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place. They were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Now Mark, chapter 1, verse 1, introduces his gospel this way. The beginning, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Or we go to Luke. Luke in chapter 1. Uh, The angel Gabriel has appeared to Mary. And these are the words of Gabriel. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And then John, John said, look, this is why I wrote the gospel. In John chapter 20, these are written, the words that I have written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, the last two references to Psalm 2 are in Revelation. Revelation picks up on another line. It's in verse 9 about Jesus' rule. So let me read to you, first of all, from Revelation 12. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations 
with a rod of iron. But her children, or but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And in Revelation 19, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now from our tradition of interpretation, we see the author John applying this this imagery of Jesus ruling with that iron rod in two different scenarios. The first depicts his birth, his first coming, and the latter, his second coming. And note, in each instance, the focus is on his exalted position as ruler over the nations. And in that latter case, it speaks of how he's going to strike down the rebellion of Satan and his forces. And there's one other important verse in our psalm that I want to bring up. It's not directly quoted, but the concept very much is attached to Jesus. Is that quote where it says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of earth your possession? Think for a moment. Think of the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of whom? Of all nations. The Messiah came not merely to save the people of one nation, but the people of all nations. And so he has. Indeed, I've already read about that when I gave the the opening verses to our worship service. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Jesus reigns over all of the nations. So clearly the New Testament attests that Psalm 2 is speaking of Jesus as the anointed Messiah. And what it presents of Jesus is more though than just a, a personal savior. He is king. He is the son of God who rules over the nations. Now, I don't know if you're you're like me when I read Psalm 2. I I do at a time I'm a little taken back because it seems to present kind of a a harsh depiction of Jesus as a stern, I mean, even a violent ruler. I mean, you shall break them. It could be rule them. Or it could be you shall break them with a rod of iron. And there's no question about the next line. Dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. What might make us uneasy, but it will serve a good reminder for us that Jesus reigns over us, not we over him. And we are saved by him so that we might serve him. And it reminds us, too, that there are only two choices to make regarding Jesus. We will either serve him or rebel. There's no neutral, there's no middle ground to take. And there is no such thing as making him savior, but he's not king uh, over my life. 
And he will respond accordingly uh, to either one. Now our psalm, though, it closes with this observation that blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so again, it's a reminder to us, we're going to make the choice, all of us. We're going to be those who rebel, and thus we will be dashed to pieces, or we are those who will kiss the Son, who will serve the Lord with fear and rejoicing. And then what we will find him to be is a blessed refuge, that he will hold us fast through whatever storms may come. And we give you praise, our God, for our Lord Jesus Christ, the anointed, whom you have set over the nations, whom you have set over us, and we gladly, we gladly kiss the Son, we worship him, serve him with joyful uh, fear, of knowing that he is the great God and King over us. And we thank you that as we serve him and worship him, we find in him that blessed refuge, that one who holds us fast. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. He will hold me fast.
Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Um, Buck and Sally Buck.